0: Uh, and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we pull our favorite books down off the shelf, dust them off, and remind ourselves why it is we love them. Joining me today, we've got Tony Piscooli. Happy to be here again. Uh, of course, I'm Tom Galley. And today we are talking about one of Tony's favorites. Tell us a little bit about this.
1: So this is, a, this is a standalone novel called Gateway by Frederick Pohl and actually expanded into a series later on after the success of the initial book. And uh, there's, there's a couple of things I love about this book. There's also one that I just hate, but that's okay. I <laughs> <laughs> put up with it. Uh, but this is, this is mind-blowing science fiction, which is my, my favorite category. There's so many big ideas here. Uh, there's a big part of what I love about it. But there's also this sort of a lottery aspect to it, which makes it really, really compelling. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a Block with big ideas. Yeah. I
0: cannot fault it for that and for being such a small book. Yeah. Um I'm just I'm impressed at how much is crammed into that.
1: It's a surprisingly uh, it's a surprisingly thin story. So there's there's two actual storylines. Um, the main character is Rob Broadhead and he is uh he's leading a crappy crappy life on planet Earth and he wins a lottery and he Spends his entire lottery winnings to buy a ticket to uh, Gateway, which is an asteroid uh, that has been converted into a space station by a previous, now missing uh, civilization called the Hechi, alien civilization. And this uh, this asteroid is is dotted with uh, spaceships, which they can use to to launch expeditions into the far reaches of the universe, but they have very little idea of how to control them. And so a lot of them don't come back. So it's a real roll of the dice if you want to do this or not. But if you do it and you discover something scientifically useful or just fascinating or commercially exploitable, you can become rich beyond your wildest dreams. Um, And then the other story is this same character later in therapy. And I remember, uh, I remember this part of the book. I remember not being my favorite part of the book, but I didn't remember that it was literally half of the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, and it's a little bit of a drag. Um, but that that works in a, in a neat way, which we'll talk about later. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, so the, the structure of this, right, is we have a chapter that's a therapy session followed by a chapter that's an exploration of his life mm-hmm. moving forward into, you know, becoming what they call a prospector Um, and it alternates back and forth like that and like I say it starts off with him then therapy which did not grip me (laughs) um you know if i had been sitting in a bookstore and said to myself i'm going to read the first chapter of 10 books to decide which one i would buy i would not have bought this one yeah um i was a little bit more committed to getting through it though and you know by the time i'm five or six chapters in it becomes compelling
1: good that's a relief uh, so here's, since you brought up structure, here's what the structure does do that I like that, that almost justifies all those tedious uh, psychoanalysis scenes is that we have two independent timelines that are building towards the exact same climactic event. Uh, we mm-hmm. have it from the past we're approaching it from the past boom and we stop there and we have it from the future after that event but we're we're digging it out of his subconscious to find out why he is the way he is and why he's in therapy uh, and we approach it from that timeline as well and they land in the same place and that is when that impact happens when that crossover happens that's really exhilarating um, indeed yeah
0: so there are I mean, let's let's Start by talking about uh, stuff that I enjoyed or that we enjoyed. Hmm. Um, And some of the big ideas here, Um, one of the most fascinating things to me is the entire world is just so unbelievably poor (laughs) and destitute. Uh, I mean, and these people who are, are... you know, physically laboring for their lives. They're literally miners. Rob was literally a miner digging for uh, shale oil. For um, food. Which they used to grow food, which they're, (laughs) they're eating the mold that grows on this thing. And he's making enough money for... A comfortable life. By comfortable life, it means that he has a place to stay. He can go out and get drunk every so often. Um, and, and that's about it. This is what he has to look forward to. And they can't, inform, they never use the word insurance, but so much of this book is about medical insurance. Yes. You haven't made it unless you can afford full medical and still have enough money to live afterwards. Yeah. Maybe you could afford major medical and still have enough money to live afterwards, you know, but there are several times, you know, you've got a character that has a $1 million payout, a $1 million bonus. um, And to decide whether that's a lot or not, what we find out is it's enough to buy full medical. But you wouldn't have anywhere to live afterwards because all of your money would have gone into this insurance. You would no longer be able to
1: sustain yourself. Now, to be fair, full medical in the book is light years beyond what we talk about. We consider a comprehensive Organ replacement, <laughs> limb
0: regrowth. You're talking about adding 50 years to your lifespan. So, yeah. I mean, it, it is science fiction. So yeah. full medical and major medical are a, a bigger deal. But still, one of the, the things that separates the haves from the have-nots is can you afford insurance? Yeah.
1: Also, can you afford to eat real food? And the Mm -hmm. answer for 95% of the population is no, you can't. You have to eat the mold that's grown on petroleum that's mined from the earth. It's just ugh. Yep. It's it's pretty dystopian. Uh, Fortunately, we don't spend a lot of time on earth before we get to Gateway, which is much more interesting. Um, But uh, I think this comes out around the same, this comes out around the Soylent Green era when one of the pressing population, one of the pressing problems of humanity was overpopulation. Mm -hmm. We thought overpopulation is gonna be the thing that destroyed us. Uh, and so it becomes a recurring theme of the series. There are actually other books in this, is how are we going to feed all these people? Yep.
0: Yeah. And I, I love another one of the big ideas I love is we we find this miraculous thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? They, they accidentally find Heechi ruins on Venus. So we're we're tech-savvy and, and advanced enough that we've gotten around to exploring Venus, mm-hmm. um, you know, and from those Hichi ruins, they accidentally discover a ship that takes them to this asteroid that happens to be covered with FTL ships, um, but the biggest of them, the biggest FTL ship available to us, holds five people. Yeah. So our exploration is, you know, in ships that we think are half a million years old. They haven't been maintained in half a million years. I mean, that's long enough for an evolution of species to occur, right? Yep. yep. Um, We've kind of figured out how to make them go places, but we can't predict where those places <laughs> are or what's there. All we know is that the Chi at some point went there. Yeah. We don't know how far it is or how long it'll take them to get there. We don't know what the conditions will be at that location. Yeah. Um, and this, this is how we're going to explore the universe. In derelict spaceships, we're going to climb into and cross our fingers and hope. They go somewhere before our food and oxygen run out
1: that's actually of use and bring us back. It's a detail that I love is that they celebrate Turnaround point because it means if you've calculated your food properly and you get to turnaround point and you still have only eaten half of your food, it means you will live to get home.
0: Yep. You don't they have lotteries, (laughs) suicide lotteries for the, the ships that have crews of three or five people. Yeah. If they make it past a certain point and it becomes obvious there aren't enough food or not enough oxygen on the ship, somebody suicides. Yeah.
1: And then you mentioned these ships are half a million years old, and that's significant because they're programmed to preset destinations or they put in destinations where they, they just know that they're going to be interesting in some way. Uh, but conditions have changed in the last 500,000 years, and, uh, yeah. and a star that was still on the main line may now be a red giant, and when you show up in a tight orbit, you may be inside the star now, and that's going to be bad for you.
0: Yep. So the idea, and, and this is actually this incredible randomness and risk is, is <laughs> central to the problems that are being suffered by the lead character all the way through. Yeah. Um, you know, his While he's a miner on earth, his, his entire vision of success is make enough money that I could get out of here, that I could get to Gateway and become a prospector. When he gets to Gateway and he sees the reality of it, suddenly he realizes, I don't have the nerve for this. I cannot yeah. lock myself in a tin can that's half a million years old, punching some coordinates that I don't know where they're going to take me, yeah. I may or may not have the supplies <laughs> to survive the round trip, assuming the destination doesn't kill me. I can't do it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, even if you can, even if you can get over your anxiety, the trip itself is incredibly unpleasant. It's like five people. Five is about the size of a studio apartment. So you have yeah. five people sharing the space for 180 days, maybe longer. Uh, it's just, you know... I mean, one of the things that happens, just aside from the normal uh, group dynamics, is there's one episode where a guy just goes crazy and tries to kill everyone else in his crew. Yeah. Just because he snaps. Yeah. So. Yep.
0: So, yeah, the the idea that this is what space space exploration looks like (laughs) um, is just bizarre to me. And the the fact that it doesn't actually matter if we manage to get it right. Even if we find a, a new Eden out there, we could only move people to it four at a time
1: Yeah, on yeah. an
0: earth that's, that's so overpopulated with so many poor, starving people. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hopeless.
1: It is, it's a grim, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a grim, grim view of the universe. And, and normally that's not my cup of tea, But the, uh, but the sort of randomness of it is so compelling, the lottery aspect. And also it's the first book in a series that becomes much more hopeful as it goes on. Yeah. I
0: was going to ask you if it was yeah. worth my time to pursue the series.
1: I think I think it is. I think if you find this first book mind-blowing, you will find the second book even more mind-blowing. Ooh. The, that sounds fun. The uh, what the final the button for book two is one of the best buttons for any book I've ever read. It's just like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> and I can't spoil it for you, I'm sorry, but it's so good.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this is definitely on my radar now. Definitely something I'm interested in pursuing.
1: Oh, I can tell you this though. <clears throat> one of the big uh, one of the big mysteries throughout this book is where did the Heichi go? They were the incredibly advanced race, and it's like uh, it's like the what is that? What is that famous uh, ghost story where they where they encounter a ship in the high seas? The Flying Dutchman. It's not the Flying Dutchman. It's the, like the wreck of the Mary Celeste or something like that. Where okay. where as they as they board to see if there are any survivors, they find that there's still a fire in the galley. Everyone just left. There's no one on this boat, but there's still like warm food out. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like that. The Heechi just up and leave, and it's like all their artifacts are in perfect condition. They just left their stuff behind. They didn't pack up and move in an orderly fashion. They just— No, they took most of their stuff. They took most of their stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> they left behind spaceships. And Do they, they
0: ever—just Do they just, yes or no question. Do they ever tell us what the prayer fans actually are? Book two.
1: Because I, I have a theory about that. Ah, uh, Okay. Uh, we can talk about it afterwards. We don't want to spoil it for anyone Of course not. Yeah. Um, but we do get an answer to what happened to the Heechi in book two, which is, yeah, which is that mind blowing thing at the end. Yeah. It's a lot of mysteries. It's easy to make a mystery that's very compelling because it's mysterious. It's like, why is there a polar bear on the island and lost and it never pays off and you're like, eh, you know, (laughs) this is one of those mysteries that pays off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here, I mentioned I had some homework to do. <laughs> I understand I had some homework to do on this book, and I and I failed to do it. Uh, this is what I was going to look up. They talk about um, uh, the way that Heechi write numbers. It's different the way that we write numbers. Apparently, the Heechi, this is a quote, apparently, the Heechi expressed numbers as sums of primes and exponents. But that's all way over my head. Uh, and... You know, we sort of do that except for the prime aspect. We express numbers in terms of units and exponents, Mm -hmm. um, not primes. But the primes made me think of the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, which you can take any number and break it down into its prime factors, Mm -hmm. and that's a canonical representation. And I'm wondering if he's mentioning something like that, if there's some unique numerical notation system based on the fundamental theorem of arithmetic, but I did not bother to sit and work it out. So, so if anybody's listening and they're a mathematician with some spare time on their hands, maybe you can explore that for us and get back to us. Yeah.
0: Now, they say something else in the book that, that caught my interest and then I didn't really know what to do with it. Uh-huh. But he says, you know, one of the working theories is apparently the Heechi visualized numbers three-dimensionally like primitive man and not two-dimensionally like we do.
1: Yeah, okay, I noted that also. Uh, And
0: I have no idea what that means because I don't know, maybe I'm not a primitive enough man. to.
1: I don't know what a three-dimensional number is. He doesn't, so he says something a little bit different. Here's the actual quote. The prime ordering isn't from bottom to top, but from front to back, which says something rather about the Hitchi. They were 3D oriented like primitive man instead of 2D oriented. So rather than laying the numbers out Linearly across from left to right, I assume that's what he means, or like this. They're like this. So the number line sort of extends beyond you and behind you instead of being arrayed in front of you. I assume that's what he means. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have I have to I, find I, a Hitchi to explain it's it. It's not to me. super clear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it might not have been super clear to him. Maybe it was yeah. just a neat sounding thing. Yeah. And again, the person that's telling us this is, is not, not an Highly expert. education. he's not <laughs> highly educated, rather, and not a mathematician. Yeah.
1: So the couple of things that jumped out of me is just curiosities. Again, from uh, you know this book was written a while ago, uh, and one is that on this space station where oxygen is the thing you have to pay for, they allow smoking. <laughs> this has always been a rub with me on submarine movies too. <laughs> Apparently they actually let you do it in a submarine, an actual submarine in World War II. That was something they did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, I don't know how or why, but yeah. uh, Smoking was so accepted that it was just, you know, of course, of course course they can't step outside to smoke. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the other one was, he talks about the vast wealth that accrues to that. So when they discover the gateway artifact, uh, rather than sort of one, Uh, nation taking it over and nationalizing it. They set up uh, a number of nations cooperate to create the Gateway Corporation Mm -hmm. and all profits flow into and through the Gateway Corporation and out to prospectors and so on that hit big scores. And they talk about the incredible riches of the Gateway Corporation as the sole exploiters of basically this ancient alien race and all of the universe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And their total revenues uh, exceed 3.7 trillion dollars. And I'm like, that's not a lot of money. <laughs> this was written when? That's a good question. I don't remember actually when it was written. Um, but was that...
0: They give us, there's uh, in one of the little window sidebars, what, what do you call the page within a page things?
1: You, oh, uh, sidebars is good. Okay. So sidebars. in
0: one of the sidebars, there's actually a thing about the, the revenue stream, but it was a, um, a report for one orbit, which is how they measure time on Gateway. Mm. How long it takes? I assume that's how long it takes Gateway itself to come back to the same spot in its orbit. So while you're looking for that, one of the things that I found fun was the fact that we didn't accidentally discover Gateway just because it was in an odd place. Yeah. Um, it's not that it was hidden, right? It's between the orbits of uh, Venus and Mars, but it's at 90 degrees to the solar system. So... Apparently, you know, what he says is most uh, astronomy is uh, oriented away from the sun, and most of it's also oriented on the ecliptic. So it was right there, a relatively easy body to find because it's made out of shiny
1: glowing metal. Um, Just never thought to look. No one was looking there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Gateway came out in 1977. So around the same time as the Star Trek Log 10, which is 1978, Star Wars, which is also 1977. Yeah. So, three so. trillion dollars was not a phenomenally large amount of money. Even back then, it wasn't a huge amount of money. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, more than the GDP of the United States at that time, but probably not excessively. Uh, yeah, but in we, again, we
0: don't know what the economy has done with all its overpopulation and, and food shortages and whatnot. You know. Yeah. Although he does, you know, his life in New York, he does tell us his rent is eighteen thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Um, which even today for a New York apartment sounds like a lot of money.
1: Does it? To me, it does. Not for a penthouse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, I mean, for a for a like a studio or something for a college student, yeah. But for someone, I don't know, for a movie for someone star? who's rich, yeah, yeah. he's he's yeah. got a spread,
0: <laughs> he's got several houses. Um, yeah, he, yeah, his I mean, richness,
1: he's, even his richness, is underwhelming. Uh, he's, he's got I think ten million dollars. I'm like. Okay, Yeah. sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, again, we, we, we don't know what the scale is. On a scale where mind-numbingly rich is $3 trillion, $10 yeah. million dollars is a pretty healthy chunk of change. change.
1: Uh, so another preview of book two, he becomes much, much richer. Like, you know, world-alteringly rich. Yeah, like okay. politicians in his back pocket rich. So, yeah.
0: Can we move on to something that just... Bothered the crap out of me? (laughs) Yes.
1: By all means.
0: Frederick Poole made a mistake. Oh, no. He gave us numbers. Oh, and you checked the numbers? He gave us something objective to look at. (laughs) And I am exactly the sort of reader that if you give me numbers, I will look at them. If you give me facts, I will look at them. Yeah. So when we start off, he says um, roughly 15% of all flights don't return. Yeah. Okay, this this is in the first few pages of the book. It's, so that doesn't sound too bad.
1: No, it sounds like a lot, actually. It's a significant amount of attrition because of a limited number of ships. Is that where you're well, doing?
0: I'm, well, that's amongst <laughs> the things I'm going to. So a little bit further, he's describing Gateway. And Gateway, when they found it, had 924 ships on it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, there's about, well, the majority of these actually have not been used yet. But so far, they found about... 200 that don't work. Hmm. Um, and they have another 304 that have been used. The, the remainder there, the other 500 or other 400, some odd, um, haven't actually been turned on yet or even yeah. tried yet. Okay. So, further in the book, he and his, uh, his girlfriend, what's her name? Clara. Clara, yeah. um, they've wandered into this room where there are these displays that have the current statistics.
1: Yeah.
0: And out of those, While they are there, it increments up. There have been 2,357 launches. There have been 841 successful returns. Successful return defined by the ship made it back. Doesn't care if the crew's alive or not. Mm, Okay. Which means there are 1,516... Unsuccessful launches. Unsuccessful launches. Now, some of those might still be in transit. Give Mm. them 100 of them. That's 1,400 ships (laughs) that are lost That's 500 more ships than are on
1: Gateway. Yeah, that's a problem.
0: It is also a survival rate of a little bit under 1 in 3. Yeah. It's a survival rate somewhere around 30%.
1: So that makes me wonder about the definition of successful launch there. Uh, Successful launch is definitely one that comes back and not one that... Deserves a bonus, a payout?
0: It just says launches and successful returns. Oh, okay. Successful returns. Hmm. So launches, the ship went away. Successful returns, the ship came back. Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's wrong. (laughs) That does not work. A, there aren't enough ships for that to be true. And B, with a one in three survival rate, you cannot have people walking around with six or seven bangles on their arm. Yeah. It can't happen. (laughs) You cannot survive a one in three survival rate trip. Seven times. It yeah. just is statistically impossible. Well, now Gateway 2 adds yeah. to this. There are 150 more ships on Gateway 2, yep. still not enough yep. to account for our math. Yep. And then even later, we have 74 vessels that returned from launch, 20 were judged lost. That's high above 15% yeah. loss. And this, this is from that Orbit 37 report, which was what we were looking for for the money, too. Um, So on four different locations, he gives (laughs) us numbers about how many ships there are, the launch rates, the survival rates, in in different ways, and none of them correspond with each other.
1: (laughs) Uh, And in fact, they
0: exclude, preclude each other.
1: It's interesting. Frederick Pohl's uh, strong point is not math. <laughs> I will give you that. It's interesting. So last time we were talking about Niven, uh, and Niven famously wrote a book called Ring World, mm-hmm. And he, uh, I think he's trained as a physicist. I don't think he was actually a practicing physicist, but I think he did at least one degree in physics. And he spent a lot of time trying to get the math right on that. He invested a lot of time. And then people still wrote in and said, nope, you overlooked this and you overlooked that. And, you know, you need to account yeah. for this. And, yeah. So. Well,
0: I mean, he gave us numbers because he wanted us to see the data that they were seeing to make it make us understand why this was so intimidating, why it was so scary. Yeah. But he really did a poor job, you know, and, and I'm not looking for three-digit precision. I'm just looking yeah. for some form of correlation, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, between the blanket statement, 15% loss rate, between what we see, you know, a, a 67% yeah, no, loss good. rate. I,
1: I admire your pedantry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This this is something that writers do that annoy me. I, if you're going to dangle a fact in front of your readers, yeah. you should expect that at least some of your readers are going to pursue that. Yep. You know. Yep. It's something I try to be mindful of when I attempt to write.
1: So you mentioned earlier in terms of structure these sidebars, and this is this is where you're getting your numbers from is one of these sidebars, mm-hmm. and that was another structurally is one of the things I really enjoyed about the book uh, these sort of um, I don't know, they're almost like post-it notes inside the manuscript, which you can ignore, or they're like side quests. Yeah. Yeah. You're reading the main narrative and then, ooh, side quest. You can go off and read some details about whatever. And it's like a, a credit report or statistics about launches or uh classified ads. Classified <laughs> ads are fun, yeah. Yeah. They're really fun. They add a lot to the world building. Uh it's I really love the format of those. Yeah. Yep. And they uh they telegraph
0: the ending a little bit.
1: Do they? That's interesting. They do. Uh, how so? I mean, yeah, oh, I, can, again, can oh, you I talk mean, about this is spoiler it? central. If, oh, okay, if You want to okay, go there yeah. now? Um,
0: so, <laughs> you know, uh, amongst so the there there are numerous different ways these, and there's a lot of them. They pop up on maybe four out of every ten pages. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a series that's astronomical lectures. Right. And this is a reasonable oh, thing to have. Yes, yes,
1: but yes, But yes. of
0: that series of astronomical lectures, um, like one of them deals with neutron stars and two or three of them mention black holes.
1: Yeah.
0: So, and then, of course, the end of the story deals with the fact that he and his crew of, you know, two ships are sent to the same spot at the same time. And holy crap, it's a black hole.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so he telegraphed that just a little bit. And then I, I'm wondering, so they describe, you know, the environment inside the black hole. Um, and mm. it's, it's this blue thing. It's just this huge blue modeled horizon that it hurts to look at because it's so
1: dim. Is it because it's so dim or because it's so, I mean, I know there's a nothingness in the center yeah. of it that's really dim. But there's also the blueness comes from, I don't know how to pronounce it, Cherenkov radiation. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh so that's uh, that's probably pretty bright and there's probably there's probably a lot of x-rays mixed in with that visible light. So that's going to hurt to look at.
0: Yeah, but the name of the bar that yeah. they spend all their time in the on hole. gateway is blue Hell.
1: blue Hell. Blue Hell. Ah, okay.
0: So I'm wondering <laughs> you know if he's actually telegraphing this from from day 1 on gateway. Right? Interesting. Because the, the lectures, the astronomical lectures start to mention, um, they mention the neutron star, and then they mention black hole, black hole, black hole. And that accelerates to the end of the book as, as we're coming into it. So, uh, you know, as I was reading this, I'm like, this has got to be, this, this is, this is signaling relevant, something, yeah. right? There's going to be a black hole in our future.
1: That's fascinating. So that didn't happen for me because I've, well, one, I probably read this book when I was young enough that I just didn't pick up on that correlation. And now I've read it so many times that I already know the ending that I don't pick up on these signals in the same way. Yeah. So that that didn't have that effect for me. But that is interesting. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah.
0: And also if you're looking for so I actually went through this twice. It was a short read, so yeah. why not? Um, again, once you know what the ending is, as you start looking at the psychological sessions, mm-hmm. all the way through, Rob is incredibly dismissive of the robot's fascination with his dreams. But when you start looking yeah. at the symbology in the dreams, it's it's very blatant.
1: Yeah. Um, There's also a big one when he talks about uh, performing oral sex on his partner, yep. and it's just it's like, it. oh, that's kind of a groaner. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, I don't know if you've looked up the name of the sequel, uh, but it ties into this. It is called Beyond the Blue Event Horizon. You know, I looked, (laughs) because the book
0: has got the the names of the sequels, the series printed there, but I looked at it and I didn't process it. I didn't actually read it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, side note about the the availability of these books, it's very weird. There are six books. Um, I've only read the first five. I didn't know there was a sixth. And Maybe I'm lying to you. Maybe there are only five. Uh, I think there are six. I think there are six. Uh, because I just bought the six. The six is available on Kindle. Uh, most of the rest are not, uh, except somehow I own the first book, Gateway, on Kindle and is no longer available to purchase on Kindle. So I don't know how that happened. I don't know if they somehow lost the U.S. distribution rights, the electronic book. It's very bizarre. It could be. It could be. And books two, no, book two is also available on Kindle, um, and then books three and four and five are only available in hardback, paperback, and audiobook. So
0: let's see. This that I have in my hands was printed in two thousand and four, and as of two thousand and four, there were only five books in the Hichi Saga.
1: Interesting. Wow. Well, yeah, I'm I think book, got six book six books. Is, is fairly recent.
0: So I noticed, you know, we had talked back in, um, when we talked about have spacesuit real real travel. (laughs) Yes. um, You know, they made, the author made just an offhand reference to the Russell Diagram remember that? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. And we
0: both commented that, you know, they were expecting a lot, A, for us to believe that this this teenage kid had a working knowledge of what the Russell Diagram was, and B, that we had a working knowledge <laughs> of what the Russell Diagram was, which neither of us do. And they refer to that several times in this book, although they give us a second, it's the Hertzsprung-Russell Diagram. Yeah. So I don't know if that's a separate Russell Diagram or the same Russell Diagram. I think but. it's
1: the same one, and they're just giving credit to, uh, to Hertzsprung, which is they don't always do, like something... You know, one person will popularize a thing, uh, and then later someone will go back and say, you know, actually this other guy was working on the same stuff at the same time, yeah. and they'll they'll attach his name like to it the Nyquist it later. theorem
0: versus the Shannon-Nyquist theorem. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. I'm trying to find out when this book six was written, because I think it was fairly recent. Uh, first published in 2005, uh. which is considerably after 1977. Yeah. Yeah, so... Well, the year that reason, after though. this book that I
0: have, that I borrowed from the library, was published. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so this is, so getting back to the idea of favorites, um, I, I found pretty comfortable. I know and there was at least one book that I recommended for us to read that, that was my stinker. I can't remember what it was now. <laughs> I was just like, ugh, I haven't read this in a while, and, and now I remember why, and it wasn't a good choice. Uh, this is a book that I read early on. This is sort of like my my uh, surefire thing for picking favorites, something that I, that I read and fell in love with early on. They get really attached to those books, but also that I continue to dip into again and again and yeah. again over the years, and it holds up. And this is one of those books for me that I think I read this first in high school, uh, and I think I've read it you know at least once every 10 years since then. And I just really enjoy this whole sequence.
0: Well, so. it uh, apparently won both the Hugo and the Nebula.
1: That's also a good sign. That's usually a good (laughs) sign indeed.
0: Yeah. All right, so closing thoughts on uh, Gateway?
1: Go read Gateway. Find a copy however you can, read it, and then read the rest if you like mind-blowing science fiction.
0: It definitely, like we said, it's got some really cool big ideas, and yet it's still a relatively uh, accessible read. Yeah.
1: All right. I haven't told you what my next pick is going to be. Oh, I haven't even thought about what my (laughs) next pick is going to be. Uh, Go ahead and uh, surprise me with it as we preview it. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a John Stakely book, one of two. Can you guess? Ah, uh, I am guessing it is Armor. Armor, it is indeed <laughs> Armor. The quintessential armored
0: power suit combat um, oh, that's book. such a good book. I haven't read it in a while. I'm looking forward to reading it again. Same, same. It's just one of those things that popped in my... I think we were talking actually about uh, Starship Troopers at some point, point. Um, hmm. and I started to realize I was conflating the combat series in Starship Troopers with stuff I had read in oh, Armor. it's and, so
1: different. Yeah. Yeah, Armor's so good. Anyway, yeah. So that, you have that
0: look forward to to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I feel like I said that for you. You have that to look forward to.
1: Okay. Also.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you in two weeks. In two weeks.